Welcome to Roleplaying History, the podcast where we explore the history of roleplaying games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 58, Dungeons & Dragons, 3rd Edition. Before we dive into this week's topic, I once again have to apologize for not putting out a new episode last week. I'd been sick for about a week and a half, then my daughter had a surgery that meant I needed to spend more time helping her with my grandson than I usually would, and all of that cut into my research and writing time. And yes, I got permission. My daughter told me I could tell you what the issue was that kept me from dropping a new episode. Anyway, I have completed the appropriate penance for my transgressions, and we're ready to dive into today's tour. So without further ado, let's crank up the tour bus and get going. Around 1999, after 10 years of the second edition of AD&D, Wizards of the Coast, who'd purchased TSR and its assets in 1997, decided it was time to work up a third edition of Dungeons & Dragons. Now, reports from sources indicate that the actual idea for third edition was formed at least as early as 1997, with Wizards wanting to put their stamp on the line as soon as they acquired the property. However, Monty Cook, Jonathan Tweet, and Skip Williams, who were the creative force behind 3rd Edition, have been advised by Wizards that the new edition of D&D needed to be new and fresh. So with their marching orders in place, they spent several years working up a complete reworking of the system. As all three have admitted many times over the years, they basically took Dungeons & Dragons and distilled it down to its most basic parts, then built a new system around it. Now, we've discussed the system in previous episodes, and that new system was the D20 system. The Player's Handbook, which was the first release in the 3rd edition line, premiered on August 10, 2000. With the D20 system, as well as the Open Game License, which, by the way, we've also discussed in a previous episode, this new edition of our all-time favorite game changed the game again. Now, I've talked about 3rd edition bringing a lot of changes on more than one episode, but I don't know that I've ever gotten into too deep of a detail about what those changes were. So if you'll humor me for a few minutes, let's get into the minutia of the changes that were made. One of the biggest changes was that the advanced part of the title was dropped. From this point forward, all D&D material would be titled Dungeons & Dragons. Another is that when rolling a D20 for rolls is that the higher the number, the greater the chance you succeed. From a combat perspective, this was different from 2nd edition, where the lower the roll, the better your chance of success. Also, armor class would now go up from 10 instead of down to as low as you could take it. This led to the elimination of FACO, which we discussed a few weeks back in our definitions episode. Checks, like skill checks, attack rolls, and saving throws, would now be based on a d20 roll. This was not necessarily the case in 2nd edition, where different checks might call for a different die to roll, and it could get confusing if you were playing different classes in different games. Ability score adjustments were streamlined in 3rd edition. 2nd edition rules meant that different abilities were adjusted in different manners depending on classes, and yeah, it could get confusing sometimes, I know. With 3rd edition, every ability score had the same table for adjustments, and you started adding bonuses at 12, where it had once been 15. Saving throws were simplified. Instead of having a whole bunch of different saves that would sometimes confuse the player, 3rd edition boiled saving throws down to 3. Fortitude, Reflex, and Will, which were based on Constitution, Dexterity, and Wisdom, and used their ability bonuses as the base. The old non-weapon proficiencies were replaced with skills. Yes, non-weapon proficiencies were technically an optional rule, but by 2000 there were a lot of gamers using them. 
The main issue with non-weapon proficiencies was that there were so many of them due to the vast amount of supplemental materials released during the 11-year run of 2nd edition that it could be hard to keep track of what was an actual TSR standard non-weapon proficiency and what was some homebrew shit somebody was trying to bring to the table without permission. The new skill system presented a standard list of skills, and with very few exceptions, there weren't any others to add to the list. One other change added with the skill system was the opportunity to try some skills untrained. In 2nd edition, if you didn't have the non-weapon proficiency, you couldn't do it. That was supposed to be an absolute, but there were some GMs who allowed for an untrained check, but with the heavy penalty. Feats were another addition to 3rd edition. 2nd edition didn't really have anything like feats. Weapon proficiencies would probably be the closest comparison. And feats, as you probably know, brought the opportunity for the character to pick up certain bonuses or abilities. And it should also be noted that for some classes, if you wanted to use certain types of weapons, you'd have to take a feat to be able to do it. In a big change to the rules, all classes in 3rd edition gained levels at the same rate. If you're someone who played 2nd edition, or 1st edition for that matter, you'll remember that every class gained levels at different rates, which meant you could, in theory, have characters two levels apart from each other in the same party, which could potentially make it a nightmare for the GM to create encounters for. Moving forward, the equal rate of level increase was supposed to make encounter creation easier, among other things. Multiclassing rules were changed. In previous editions, if you wanted to multiclass, you had to make that decision at character creation. And at first level, you were said to be half of one class and half of the other. The rest of the rules were, in my opinion, convoluted and confusing, which might have been intentional to avoid multiclassing. Under third edition rules, a character can choose to multiclass whenever they gain a level, and thanks to the standardized experience point chart, it became much easier to keep track of the character's levels. Racial restrictions on certain character races was eliminated. Instead, each race gets certain bonuses to certain abilities and or skills. Humans also get some advantages because they are, per the authors, jacks of all trades. With the exception of the Paladin, and even that restriction was lessened in later materials, alignment restrictions for classes were eliminated. Half-orcs were added to the standard race list. They'd been around for a while as a playable race, but that was because they were added in supplemental material. This was the first time they were a core race in a core rulebook. Halflings got a bit of a cosmetic change. Instead of looking like the traditional Hobbit, remember that Lord of the Rings was an inspiration for the game in the beginning, 3rd edition halflings got thin and they lost the hair on their feet. In fact, most halflings in 3rd edition wore boots or shoes. Gnomes also got a cosmetic change. While short and skinny, like halflings, gnomes in this edition are a bit taller than their halfling cousins. Well, maybe distant relatives that we don't invite to parties. But anyway, there were a lot of changes made to the classes in 3rd edition. First off, the idea of class groups was eliminated. In previous editions, rangers and paladins were just different flavors of fighter. Druids were just another type of cleric. And bards, well, they were just a different type of rogue. Moving forward, all of these character types would be their own distinct classes. And as you might have noticed, the thief became the rogue. Just sounds a bit more polite, truth be told. With multi-classing rules allowed, every character has both a class level and a character level. Now, for most characters, these will be the same, but if you multi-class, these will be different. In other words, a 10th level character with levels in both rogue and ranger could be, say, a 6th level rogue and a 4th level ranger. 
Speaking of our rogues, there are six skills in 3rd edition that would have once been exclusive to rogues. In this new edition, any character can learn them. Getting back to classes for a moment, three classes were added to the core group of classes, the Barbarian, the Monk, and the Sorcerer. Barbarians and Monks had appeared in previous editions, though their rules were way different than they became for 3rd edition. The Sorcerer was basically a whole new class idea, especially since it was an arcane spellcaster that didn't need to memorize spells. And that was standard. In previous editions, in order to get anything close to a Sorcerer, you'd have to finagle proficiencies, and even then you could really just get close. Clerics also got a change. In previous editions, there were different spell lists to use depending on the type of cleric you played. And as I mentioned a moment ago, druids were once just a different flavor of cleric. Now, there's one spell list for all clerics. Yes, there are domains, which each cleric has one of, but the list is the same regardless of your domain. Druids and wizards and sorcerers also have their own lists. Hey, while we're on the class subject, 3rd edition also brought us to the prestige class. Each class had at least one, and the idea was that you could take levels in this prestige class, and the prestige class had its own advantages your character could get. Yeah, I know, we're spending a lot of time looking at changes to the game, but there were a lot of changes. I told you this was going to take a couple of minutes. Well, maybe a couple of minutes more. If characters saw a lot of changes, you have to know that combat saw changes as well. I know I've mentioned this one on more than one occasion, but since I'm taking the time to do a list, let's throw it in here. In combat, a roll of 20 had the potential to be a critical hit. Needless to say, the attack would hit regardless, but the player would make another roll. If that roll plus bonuses would hit the opponent, the roll was a critical roll and would allow for the player to double their damage. Conversely, a roll of 1 was always a failure. Womp womp. Sorry. Combat rounds were standardized with a time of 6 seconds. That means that everything that takes place during an entire go-through of the participants once takes 6 seconds. Another change was that initiative was rolled only once at the beginning of combat. This was done to streamline combat. In previous editions, initiative was re-rolled at the beginning of every round. Okay, so with that, I think I'm done running through my list of changes in the player's handbook from 2nd edition to 3rd. At the time, Pyramid Magazine did a review, and they said, quote, There's a lot to like about Dungeons & Dragons 3rd edition, as seen in the player's handbook. The new artwork is gorgeous and evocative, and in the 286 pages of the main rulebook, there's a lot of well-written and tightly packed rules, end quote. I do need to note that at the time, there were some complaints about the character sketches in the player's handbook, as there were some that lamented the modern look of the characters. Whether it was the hairstyles, the lack of shirts on some of the male characters, and the lack of material on some of those females' shirts, or the amount of piercings different character sketches had. There just seemed to be some gamers who were looking for something to complain about with this new edition. Me? I was just trying to figure out the new rules. I didn't have time to bitch about the drawings. The Dungeon Master's Guide was released shortly after the Player's Handbook in 2000. What made the DMG different from previous editions was that the idea for 3rd edition was that the Dungeon Master's Guide was designed to provide enough information to the DM to allow them to adequately explain the rules and the game to their players, as well as to allow them to feel more comfortable in running their game. The DMG also contained magic items for use in the game and provided DMs with the rules for creating their own. 
It should be noted that the DMG got a reprint in 2001, which was done in order to correct mistakes from the previous version, which should tell you how much errata there was in that original edition. And I can speak from experience on this one. There was a whole bunch of it. All right, let's move on to the third of the three core rulebooks. The Monster Manual was released on October 1st, 2000, and as with the other two books in the core line, it was designed by Monty Cook, Jonathan Tweet, and Skip Williams. Now, I gave a three or four page long list of changes in the Player's Handbook from 2nd to 3rd edition. I've got a few changes to monsters that I want to list here, and I promise this won't take nearly as long. One of the first things DMs and players noticed was the concept of the challenge rating for monsters. This was a new development, and it was put into place to make it easier for DMs to determine what encounters would work for their party. Basically, it goes like this. The challenge rating, or CR number, tells you what level a party of four should be in order to take on this monster on equal footing. So a monster with a CR of five would be about an even fight for a fifth level party. Another change was to hit points for monsters. In 2nd edition, basically all monsters got a D8 for their hit dice, which meant that all hit points were figured out by rolling D8s. For 3rd edition, this was changed. Some monsters kept the D8, while others got D4s, D6s, or even D12s. This allowed for a greater variation of hit points for monsters, which also allowed for some monsters to be tougher or easier than others. The monster stat blocks in the books also had a number of hit points after the hit dice. This was supposed to be an average number of hit points, and this allowed the DM to pull the monster out of the book as is and run it for their group without having to worry about rolling up hit points. A saving throw against the energy drain of Undead was added to the game. Failure would give the character failing that save negative levels, which would put a cumulative minus one modifier to rolls until they could either cure the condition or they took as many negative levels as they had in character levels, at which point they'd die. I mentioned the challenge rating a minute ago. Another change, which was based on the CR, is in how experience points were applied to monsters. The Dungeon Master's Guide has a chart that details how many XP a monster of a certain challenge rating is worth based on the character level of the party. So, for example, a level 4 party would get considerably more XP for a CR 6 monster than a CR 2. That reflects the difficulty of the more powerful monster and the relative ease of the less powerful one. Monsters with special abilities have those abilities fall into one of three categories. Extraordinary, spell-like, and supernatural. The categories determine how the abilities apply to things like spell resistance and how they can be neutralized in combat. Monsters also have their abilities streamlined, and now they have the same abilities as characters. Strength, dex, con, intelligence, wisdom, and charisma. They also have saving throw bonuses just like the players. Monsters can also gain levels in character classes, which has the potential to make a monster even more powerful than it was originally written. Finally, dragons were beefed up to be more powerful than they'd been in previous editions. One of the reviewers for Pyramid Magazine called it, quote, an essential reference book, and it is a bargain, end quote. It won the 2001 Origins Award for Best Graphic Design of a Role-Playing Game, Adventure, or Supplement. Now, a number of supplements, mostly adventures, dropped within the first year and a half of the new system, and they were designed to allow players new to the system to start playing without having to create their own adventures or try to adapt their second edition game to the new system. And for the record, Wizards tried to allow for adaptation of second edition characters to third edition. 
Early in 2000, Wizards released a conversion guide. Then my group got a hold of a copy of it, as we'd been playing 2nd Edition for quite some time. My buddy Jim, who was running the game at the time, sat down with me, and we tried to figure out how to adapt my character, since I was the one there, to these new rules. Now, as I remember it, we got frustrated, then angry, then we basically decided it'd be easier to keep the levels of the characters we had, but rebuild them to the new rules. And Jim, call me out on that if I'm wrong, and I'll make sure I put the corrections in next week's episode. So before we move forward, we need to back up a little bit. I've mentioned on more than one occasion that when Wizards of the Coast bought out TSR in 1997, they immediately started making changes, though many gamers didn't immediately notice. One of the major changes they made was to cut down the number of campaign settings from 6 to 3. Greyhawk, which was considered to be the de facto home setting, Forgotten Realms, and Dragonlance. Those were the three settings that survived. However, when 3rd edition arrived, Wizards only supported two. Greyhawk was again considered to be the default home setting, and Forgotten Realms got their 3rd edition release shortly thereafter. Rob Heinsu was tapped to update the Forgotten Realms to 3rd edition, and he advanced the timeline in the setting from 1358DR to 1372DR. Additionally, he managed to seamlessly change the realms from the 2nd edition standard to the 3rd edition. He did so well with this that the Forgotten Realms campaign setting won the Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Supplement of 2001. But the good times for the realms didn't last forever. When City of the Spider Queen, which released in 2002, didn't sell as well as expected, Wizards cut back on the production of new adventures for a while. Now, while Wizards was only supporting two campaign settings, there was a third that was getting some support. In 2000, Wizards had licensed Ravenloft to White Wolf Publishing. Using their Sword and Sorcery Studios imprint, White Wolf released the D20 system Ravenloft campaign setting in 2001. Now, they called it D20 System instead of 3rd Edition because, thanks to the open game license, while they could produce material for D&D, they couldn't utilize intellectual property controlled by Wizards. And the license didn't include things like Bane, who got his name changed to Lawgiver. The supplement sold well, but not great, but Ravenloft fans were happy to have their favorite setting converted to the new system. Wizards of the Coast was celebrated for this new version of D&D. The book sold well, and the D20 system was such a success, other publishers began publishing game materials for it. So, of course, Wizards had to drop a new edition of the game. Alright, so 3.5 isn't technically a new edition. When the new core books came out in 2003, Wizards argued that they were just to make small adjustments and corrections to the books. However, there were enough alterations to all three books that most gamers, myself included, saw 3.5 as an almost entirely new version. Some of the things being addressed were concerns about certain aspects of gameplay, the addition of new spells, changes to current spells, and the removal of some spells. However, things got a bit hairy when new feats were added and others were changed, while skills were also added, while others were combined to keep the skill list a consistent size. The New Player's Handbook was released in July of 2003, with Andy Collins getting credit for some of the changes in the book. Skip Williams was asked about those changes, and he said, quote, I think they range from the almost invisible, unless it affects your character directly, to the pretty radical, end quote. Andy Collins attempted to blunt some of Williams' comments by stating, quote, Well, I don't think I'd call any of the changes radical. Even though some characters will undergo some significant changes, the aim is for the character to still feel like the same character, only with more interesting and balanced options. End quote. 
In other words, it's basically a new edition, but under the old edition number with a half added to it. That's why I jokingly refer to 3.5 edition as the actual fourth edition of D&D. Wizards decided in 2012 to do premium reprints of the 3.5 core books, and the player's version came out on September 18, 2012. In July of 2003, the 3.5 edition of the Dungeon Master's Guide was released. David Noonan and Rich Redmond are accredited designers for this update, and both admitted in interviews over the years that their sole goal was to design this version to better explain to DMs and players how to play the game plus to streamline the design and rules about how they did it. They also had to make sure they kept the changes from the player's handbook in mind as they did that, and therefore made it a point to stay in contact with the design team on the PHP. The Dungeon Master's Guide got its own premium reprint, and that released on September 18th, 2012. Now, before we get into the 3.5 Monster Manual, we do need to note that between the release of the 3rd Edition Monster Manual and the 3.5 Monster Manual, Wizards released two other monster books, Monster Manual 2 and The Fiend Folio, which released about a year apart from the Monster Manual and each other. The 3.5 edition of the Monster Manual was released in July of 2003. Rich Baker and Skip Williams were tapped to lead the revision, and they made some pretty big changes. The biggest change was in dividing the monster's attacks between attack and full attack, which took into account whether the monster was moving their movement with an attack or just standing still and taking a full round to attack. The other major change was in including an enhanced version of each monster so you could see examples of how to advance them to make them potentially more challenging for your players. This version of the Monster Manual also added some monsters from the Psionics Handbook and the Manual of the Planes. The premium reprint was released on September 18, 2012. Monster Manual 3 was published in September of 2004, and it was a 3.5 original. Rich Burlew and a band of about a dozen handled the designs, and it's notable for letting DMs and players know where these monsters might be found in the Forgotten Realms and in the Eberron setting. We'll talk about Eberron in a minute. Monster Manual 4 dropped in July of 2006, and Gwendolyn F.M. Kestrel was part of the dozen-strong team that designed it. Now, this version didn't have as many monsters as the previous editions, but they did work out some sample layers and encounters, they gave stats for classes and templates, and applied them to old monsters, and they drew up some full-page maps. In October of 2006, the Special Edition Monster Manual was created, which was part of a special line of core rulebooks that started in 2004 and were created to celebrate the 30th anniversary of D&D. All three books in the line were leather-bound with silver gilt edges and a cloth bookmark. All three books also got updated with all the gathered errata available at the time. In July of 2007, the final Monster Manual for 3.5 edition was released. Titled Monster Manual 5, David Noonan was the lead designer, and he and his team followed the design of the Monster Manual 4, which was fewer monsters, but layers, templates, and maps included. Now getting back to the Forgotten Realms, Wizards of the Coast began releasing new supplements once 3.5 edition had been released, and these new supplements were used to update the campaign setting to the new edition, as well as provide new classes, races, monsters, etc. to the Forgotten Realms. Ravenloft also got an update. The 3.5 Ravenloft Player's Handbook came out in 2003 and updated Sword and Sorcery's Ravenloft to the updated edition. The license for Ravenloft reverted back to Wizards of the Coast in 2005, so White Wolf had until June of 2006 to sell their backstock, but they couldn't produce new material. 
We almost lost Van Richten's Guide to the Mist because of this, as White Wolf had already drawn it up and was preparing to release it when they lost the license. So instead of publishing it for sale, White Wolf offered it as a free download in September of 2005. In October of 2006, Wizards released Expedition to Castle Ravenloft, which was an updated version of the original first edition adventure. Wizards made the call to make this version a standalone, which means it was appropriate to drop into any setting. Furthermore, Wizards took great pains to separate their Ravenloft from White Wolf's Ravenloft. Finally, thanks to the way Expedition to Castle Ravenloft was set up, many gamers wondered if Wizards was preparing to drop a new edition for D&D. Two years later, they'd be proven correct. Now, I mentioned the Eberron campaign setting a little bit ago. Eberron was a brand new campaign setting to D&D, and it came from an open competition Wizards ran in 2002. Called the Fantasy Setting Search, it was Wizards trying to engage the gaming community to create a new setting for D&D. For the record, our entire gaming group tried to convince Jim to work up his setting for the contest, but unfortunately he never did. It would have been cool, I can assure you. Maybe I'll get him to hand me his notes sometime and we can break his setting down either here or over on the campaign build-along. Anyway, I'm thinking out loud again. Keith Baker, who was an author and game designer at the time, won the contest, which had over 11,000 entries. His setting, Eberron, was released in 2004 as the Eberron campaign setting in a hardback copy. One of the primary differences between Eberron and, say, the Forgotten Realms is that high-level magic, like the Resurrection spell, is a lot less common. The flip side of that is how low-level magic is pretty much prevalent throughout, so mages in Eberron tend to rely more on low-level magic. Magic lanterns line the streets in Eberron's cities, and the magical lightning rail is available for transportation. Eberron was also notable for the muddled nature of its alignments and its religion. Both existed, but they weren't as clear-cut as they were in the D&D core books. Many would argue this makes Eberron more like real life, but some traditionalists weren't having it, and they just went back to their preferred settings. Eberron introduced the Artificer to the list of available character classes, as you may know, the Artificer is a mage who focuses on creating magical items. The world of Eberron has seven continents, and through its various supplements and adventures, players had the ability to take their groups to all of them in time. Four new races were added to the game, Changelings, Shifters, Kalistar, and Warforged. Now, we still have Changelings and Warforged in some form in 5th edition, and Shifters were based on Doppelgangers, while Kalistar were based on Lycanthropes, so to that end, we still have them in the game today as well. Warforged were and are interesting creatures, as while they're living, sentient creatures, they're created at least in part by mages and or artificers, so that was an interesting key put in there. Overall, Eberron was well-received and well-reviewed, Gabrielle Lissauer wrote in the Tropes of Fantasy Fiction that, quote, Eberron changed several ideas that were considered fundamental to the concept of Dungeons and Dragons for the past 30 years, both mechanically and in the flavor of the worlds. With changes to things that most players considered being fundamental to the game, Eberron subverts and yet at the same time shows what the game could be, end quote. Geek and Sundry added their own opinion, quote, Eberron marries magic with steampunk's technology, offering a world of elemental-powered airships, industrial mobility, and arcane tinkerers. I dig the playable Warforged race, which puts you in the mind of a soldier drone sinking purpose, although their explicit maleness serves a pedantic point. If you want to sling spells in a tailored coat, check out Eberron. 
For the record, the setting won the Origins Award for Best Role-Playing Game Supplement of 2004, and it's still around as it was updated for 5th edition. But we'll discuss that when we deep dive 5th edition on another show. Over the course of the 3rd edition, 3.5 edition, there were somewhere in the area of 70 different supplements and adventures published for the game. And that doesn't count the third-party releases that were a result of the open game license. While I don't have time to cover them all, I would like to cover two more in this week's episode. The Dungeon Master's Guide 2, with Jesse Decker, David Noonan, Chris Thomason, James Jacobs, and Robin D. Laws, was released in June of 2005. The stated purpose of the DMG2 was to focus even further on assisting DMs with running their games. This book went even deeper into the philosophy of running a game, and even went so far as to lay out the various types of gamers. Now, their list cracks me up, so I wanted to drop it here. Brilliant Planner, a leader type who is happiest when planning for the night's adventure. Cool Guy, player who likes to get cool powers and cool weapons. Lurker, someone who is happiest when left to his own devices. Outlier, an oddball player who likes to see his characters lose, seeing it as a victory more than a defeat. Psychodramatist, a player who likes exploring the background of his or her character and would love to have a session centered on that character. Yeah, you'll know they didn't say anything about the asshole. Go back to my definitions episode, you'll know what I'm talking about. The book had okay sales and mixed reviews. Pyramid Magazine's review pretty much sums it up. Quote, The Dungeon Master's Guide 2 is a supplementary volume intended to make the referee's job easier, but it only achieves mixed results. End quote. Look, I gotta admit, I own a copy of this book. And for the record, I could probably sell it in mint condition because I don't think I've opened it since I bought it because, well, I found it to be basically useless. But... That's my opinion. The last book on our tour today is The Player's Handbook 2. Designed by David Noonan and released in May of 2006, The Player's Handbook 2 provided the player with new classes, spells, feats, and options for role-playing and designing their characters. The four new classes are The Beguiler, a roguelike spellcaster who specializes in illusions and enchantments, Dragon Shaman, a relatively well-rounded character who gains spell-like abilities similar to a dragon, Duskblade, an elven-based hybrid of the fighter and wizard, but it was available to any race. Finally, the Knight, lawful fighters who use bard-like charisma to draw threatening opponents away from party members and onto themselves. This is the textbook definition of a tank in a role-playing situation. In an attempt to be helpful, the final chapter of this book contains information to modify an existing character to the classes and the rules that were provided in this book. The sales were decent, so were the reviews. Let's go back to Pyramid Magazine. They said, quote, players can use quite a bit of the information for playing D&D, end quote. Short and to the point. Again, I own a copy of this book, and again, I think I could sell it in mint condition because I really didn't use it. But again, that's my opinion. And with that, we come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we deep dive a trio of games, Aberrant, Adventure, and Chivalry and Sorcery. Should be an interesting show. All right, so I know I mentioned this in the little blurb I dropped last week, but I think it bears repeating here. By now, if you're a subscriber to the Bad GM Productions YouTube channel, you will have seen our YouTube exclusive as we took a look at the new D&D adventure, Adventures in ADHD, which was published by our friends Awfully Queer Heroes. If you haven't checked it out, I strongly suggest you do so. We might take a deeper look at that on a future episode of this show, but I really think the campaign build-along is the better forum for it. Still debating on that, so I'll let you know when and what I decide. 
I also wanted to point out that all of our role-playing history videos are now available on the Bad GM Productions YouTube channel, along with all of the episodes of the campaign build-along. So, if you're a new listener to this show and you prefer to use YouTube, head over to the channel and check out the archives. We've got the episodes sorted into their own categories, so you won't have to figure out what episode goes where. Finally, if you follow us on the socials, and if you don't, you should, I'm on them on a daily basis, you'll have noticed we have a new logo for Bad GM Productions. We're considering potentially creating some merch with our logo on it, so if you think you might be interested, hit us up and let us know what you would like to see. If you haven't checked out Bad GM's campaign build-along, I highly recommend it, though I do have to admit I'm biased. We're building a full campaign for Deadlands Classic, and since my group plays what we create, I also give feedback on how things went. Bad GM's campaign build-along is available wherever you get your podcasts. The music we use for the show comes from Pixabay.com. Check them out for all your royalty-free, license-free music needs. Role Playing History is a production of Bad GM Productions. You can check us out on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Bad GM Productions, Twitter at Bad GMP, YouTube, Bad GM Productions, Twitch, Bad GM, and our email is badgmproductions at gmail.com. Next week, it's Aberrant, Adventure, and Chivalry and Sorcery, so make sure you don't miss it. Until then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're Role Playing History.